Welcome to episode three of Who Who Hail, a championship podcast. I can't believe we've gotten to episode three. This is so exciting. Woo-hoo. I am Jeff Coe, and I'm here with the super cute and funny Kathy Chong. Thanks, Jeff. Welcome, everyone. We are so excited to recap week two of college football. Kathy, based off of what you saw this week, and I don't want to talk about Michigan, is Indiana closer to the championship or hashtag nine Indiana? We have this statistic that we're going to uncork about how the last time Indiana won eight games was in 1993. Or as you alluded to last week, could it be close to hashtag 12 Indiana? I believe we are closer to the championship after Saturday's game. Big shout out to the Hoosiers because they had the biggest shutout in Memorial Stadium history, 52 to zero. Eastern Illinois just couldn't handle Indiana's offense, which was a good mix of different passing plays and running. Eastern Illinois. Is that an FBS team? It is not. All right. So maybe a little bit of an asterisk against this Vegas victory. You know what? They're going to be probably the easiest team that we see Indiana play all year. But I I still saw some pretty good things. And it's good, right? Because you get the younger guys some, some run and they get to, you know, come out here and play. It is. So we got to see, as a result of that, six different players scored their first touchdown of the season. Coach Allen really took advantage of this and played a lot of his younger players. So, for instance, we had Samson James from Avon, Indiana, who had his first touchdown. He's a running back? Yes, he's a running back. And then we also saw the first touchdown of the game made with a 10-yard pass from Penix to redshirt freshman Miles Marshall. And we'll talk about that on our major key segment, what redshirt freshman means. We will. We saw our backup kicker, Charles Campbell, get to kick with a 48-yard field goal, which he made. And your main kicker, Logan Justice, right? Yes. He's awesome, right? He's like making all the kicks. I have so much faith in Logan Justice, but I was really happy to see Charles Campbell get a second to take his shot too. Another cool thing that we saw was Payne Ramsey. He entered the game on the final drive of the first half. It was a good chance to get him ready in case he has to play against the Big Ten. And hopefully that never happens, right? Exactly. Like hopefully Penix never gets hurt. He makes it to the end of the year. You guys win the title. Yes, that's definitely something that we hope for on this podcast. His first play was a 64-yard touchdown pass to Ronnie Walker. And the funny thing about Peyton, he's kind of Indiana's GOAT. He's our all-time completion percentage leader at 65.8%. And that's what we always said about him, right? He's dependable, like mm-hmm. high floor. We don't know. We think his ceiling isn't low ceiling, but maybe Penix's ceiling is higher. But we think that he's a high floor, and that's just proof of that, right? He's just very stable, very dependable. Good to have someone like that with QB1 starter experience as your QB2, because you just come in, slot right in, and you don't really have to worry about the drop, which is an issue that we're going to talk about Michigan a little bit in a second. Mm-hmm. Yep, we saw QB1, we saw QB2. We also saw QB3, Jack Tuttle, who's our third-string quarterback, He got to play in the fourth quarter. So if you have your third string quarterback playing, that obviously means that things are looking pretty good. And I agree. You know, for me, this game was fun to see because I felt like we got to see a lot of really cool things happening with our team. You see our younger players play. But it was kind of a snoozer in a good way. And what I mean by that is I did, I hate to admit, I fell asleep during this game. When I fell asleep, the score was 35-0 Indiana, and I woke up when we were 42-0 Indiana, so not a bad thing. And I really wish that that was the game against Army. I just wanted to go to sleep and wake up and wait for the nightmare to end. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second, Jeff. But one really cool thing, too, is we love, on this podcast, we really love the sports writing in the Indy Star, 
right? And they have this really great article on your new defensive coordinator. They do. His name's Kane Walmack. He's Indiana's new defensive coordinator this year. He's a young guy. He's 32. And his dad is a veteran of coaching defenses. He got hired because Coach Allen, as you all know, last year he was working as both the head coach and the defensive coordinator. So he spent many nights past 1 a.m. in the office, the article states, and he knew the night he pulled an all-nighter that it was time to hand over the keys. Sometimes that's how it works, right? Like if you promote your defensive coordinator to the head coach, he's still the defensive coordinator. That's his background. That's Mm -hmm. what he knows. But now he has to run the program. And I think a lot of coaches do it differently. Like some coaches manage both sides of the ball. Some coaches will like, you know, the side of the ball, they know like a QB coach like Jim, he'll run the offense and hire someone to run the defense, hire Don Brown. But I think for Coach Allen, he started off as a DC. So it makes sense for him to continue that role for a little bit. But you say he knew it was time to hand it over? Yeah. So he originally pulled Kane. He knew he wanted Kane and he pulled him as a linebacker coach. And Coach Allen actually was quoted as saying he thought Kane was ready for the job at the time, but he wanted to give him some time, get him comfortable. But he pretty quickly handed the keys over for the defensive coordinator position. That's cool. Like he's 32. He's our age and he's running the defense. That's that's awesome to watch. That is really cool. I We saw some mistakes on the defensive end week one, but they looked a lot better this week. Demarcus Elliott looked really good with the sack early in the game. Tackling as a whole looked a lot better. We only saw 52 yards allowed to Eastern Illinois in the first half. But that's with the hashtag that they're an FCS program, an asterisk that they're an FCS program and not an FBS program. So we have to take a grain of salt with all that. We'll see if you're saying the same thing next week, Jeff, when we play OSU. So, okay, is Michigan closer to the title after the Army game? Did they get a star last week? I don't want to talk about it. Jeff, I think the hail part of hoo-hoo hail means you kind of have to talk about it. I still don't want to talk about it. Fine, I'll talk about it. From what I saw, Michigan was sluggish. There were lots of mistakes, zero passing touchdowns. Tariq Black was three for 24. Nico Collins was two for 32. There were issues with pass protection. Patterson was sacked four times and he lost two fumbles. If I have to talk about it, I think our defense really saved the day by winning the game in double overtime on a sack that stripped the ball from the poor Army quarterback who had to pass out of a third and 11 situation. I think one of four passes that he had all game, they just didn't really need to pass. But I think your list is right. There's a whole litany of offensive issues that were offensive, frankly, and they have to work on it during the bye week. How do you think Shea Patterson looks, Jeff? Did he look okay? I don't know. I mean, Coach Harbaugh always plays cagey with some of the injury issues, and he doesn't want to give things away to the other side or have them sort of run towards that injury. I think that Shea just looked, you know, when he, whenever he picked up the ball to pass, it seemed like he couldn't follow through or raise his arm a certain way. And I think he was officially diagnosed with an oblique injury, which I had to look up like what an oblique was. MGO blog has this little segment on obliques and why they're necessary. So why would Harbaugh play Shea if he's hurt? Isn't Dylan ready to go? I think there's a lot of conjecture on this issue, like whether or not Dylan's really, obviously we all know he's a good runner, but there are always rumors There's always the camp where QB2 is the most popular person in the entire building because a lot of fans are enamored with, you see QB1 out there working and you think QB2 is in this magical fairy universe where he's doing really good. 
or he would do amazing if allowed to play. The flip side of that is the coaches know, right? They see him in practice. And so I think the two explanations are one, Dylan isn't ready, which I hate to say it. I don't think that that's the case. I think Dylan had really good reviews in spring practice. The other possible explanation on this is that Gaddis has installed this new offense and everyone's trying to get used to the timing. And so if even if Shea can't pass the ball or Shea can't tuck it and run on the read option, he still wants everyone to just get used to the timing in each other. And so have Shea be a statue out there managing the game still better than disrupting that. And I think that might be the explanation, but who knows? It seems like the rushing game was okay. Charbonnet had 100 yards, but that was after 33 carries. I think that ratio, yards per run, isn't great. But I do think that Charbonnet didn't have any help at all. So, for instance, on the read option, the defense just crashed into him as a running back because Shea wasn't going to pick up the ball and run. I think Charbonnet made a lot of good use of his legs and just his vision and his good sense to make a lot of junk yards out of nothing. And so my personal opinion is that that's leaning way too heavily on a true freshman. But despite how the numbers might divide over the carries, Charbonnet really did look good trying to make the most of it on his runs. So he just looked great. And I think he's the real deal. Are there any lessons from the defense that we can take into next week? I think the defense played amazing. Don Brown had this crazy hype article and he was yelling, just hyped up about how he's really excited that Michigan defense can now play Michigan defense, what they're used to playing. Like when he was getting ready for Army, they're all weird, different assignments that are not relevant at all. But Michigan defense has been running the same thing for the past two years, and these guys know it. So he's so excited to say that we can just go back to running Michigan defense as opposed to the two weird systems that Army runs or Middle Tennessee runs. That's not really applicable to how the rest of Big Ten play is going to go. I think the one thing that you can draw from how the defense played is When you're defending a triple option, you really have to have sound, what they call assignment sound football. So you you really have to key onto which person is going to run the ball in the offense and really be really sound. Because once you miss an assignment, that person's going to take it a long way. And so that probably will translate, right? Like just how well our players were able to fulfill their assignments. But the big worry is all-star, all-world running back Jonathan Taylor of the Wisconsin Badgers He's amazing, and he's behind this offensive line of Wisconsin boys that are all 300 pounds, raised on cheese curds and beer and milk and just Mm -hmm. giant, and they block these amazing gaps for Jonathan Taylor to run through. So we have lots of work to prepare for that. Man, Michigan Army, that game, it was too close for comfort. I heard somewhere that if you lose to Special Forces, you're automatically out of the playoffs. That's what I said last week. If you lose your service academy, you're out of the playoff. That's right. You said that last week. I'm learning things from our own podcast. That's pretty cool. Let's cover a few of what we found to be the most interesting storylines from week two. And as always, given the long history of this podcast, we'll pick our three most memorable storylines. Some recurring, continuing from the past week, some new ones. Jeff, it was your view that week two was generally not that exciting, right? Well, I got all the excitement that I didn't want, and more, from the double overtime game that should never have gone in that far. That was pretty exciting, and you got so many texts from your friends. Exciting is the word for it. All for a bad reason, some friends that I have. But other than the Michigan Army game, I think that captured my attention for the day. 
and I was grouchy for the rest of the day. There were some other fun storylines. I think the three we had in the show notes were number one, the Vols, number two, Nebraska, Colorado, and number three, the house party that you threw. Which was a house party to honor my friend J.C. Kibbe, the only Michigan State graduate that he can tolerate in terms of college rivalries from Little Brother and someone who's going to guest host on this podcast. But before we get to that, our first storyline, the Vols, they lose again, which two losses to start the season. I think two losses, first time in 31 years. And I hate to say it, but two losses really just, them losing again just makes me really happy. Kathy, why don't you tell us, first of all, what happened in the game? They were looking good. I mean, they had a win probability of 99.6%. The Vols had a win probability. And what, what does that remind us of? The high oh win probability. Gosh. It reminds us of Indiana. Last year, where they have this giant win probability and somehow kick away the game. Don't remind me. But the Vols let BYU complete a 64-yard pass in the final seconds to set up a game-tying field goal and eventually falling 29-26 in double overtime. This is the first time in 31 years that they are 0-2. and two. There was just a series of missed throws and chances. And it's so funny because Phil Fulmer, he's a legendary coach for the Vols from the 90s, and he's currently athletic director of Tennessee. There were jokes going around Twitter that he was going to rehire himself as the coach. Kevi, what's the opposite of a shout out? You know how, like Solid Verbal, which we really like, sometimes we name the podcast the week, like after Brandon Telton, who's awesome, or Elizabeth Scott, who really took that hit to her nose and stride. But what about anti-naming the podcast? People that we are not about here on the podcast. Well, we're generally a pretty sunny and positive podcast here on Who Who Hail. But there are some clowns that I just have to mention. This guy, Clay Travis, he's out here flaming Michigan for the entire Army game, you know, reading his thread and getting so mad. But several hours later... I guess you have our editorial permission to read out these tweets from Clay since you got so upset during the Michigan Army game. And I quote, This loss is worse than Georgia State. Tennessee football is cursed beyond belief. That game was impossible to lose given the final minute and Tennessee lost it. Not much else to say. Hilariously, after not much else to say, he follows that tweet up later on by saying this. This was an unmitigated disaster for Tennessee in the final 30 seconds of the game. There is no way to justify giving up that pass play with 30 seconds left. Having said that, for 59 minutes and 30 seconds, Tennessee played pretty well against BYU. But Kathy, you were listening to the recaps of the Michigan Army game, and you were saying that Michigan fans are eternally sunny and optimistic, regardless of the product on the field? I was saying that. They'll get frustrated during moments on the game. And you have this side of fans where they're like, fire Harbaugh or Shea shouldn't be quarterback. But then the following week, everyone will be all rah-rah, ready to go, ready to support the team. And I will say I'll admire that. They show up. They show up to the bars. They show up to watch the game. They do have a lot of pride in Michigan football. And credit to Tennessee fans who are just bringing it every game, filling up the stadium, going to watch it. But I think even I empathize, given what you said about Michigan fans being optimistic, I empathize with Clay, right? He tweets that there's not much else to say. We're cursed beyond belief. And then he follows that up with, well, we play pretty well against BYU other than the 30 seconds. I can empathize with Clay, despite giving him a shout out as clown of the week here on the podcast. For our second storyline, Nebraska, 
Colorado. Kathy, why don't you take us away on that? Man, when you talk about Nebraska, I just get so bitter about Kirkwoods and their giant welcome sign and the fact that they'll play Nebraska games over Indiana games. But they're like, I, I still am confused. Like, they're listed as an official Indiana bar? They are an official Indiana bar, yes. You think we'll ever get to watch a game there? For basketball season. Have you you've been to a Kirkwood's basketball game? Is that the is that a place where you won the tickets for the alumni game? Was it is not the same place. That was Joe's on Weed Street. Oh, you won the tickets at Joe's. Yeah, I won okay. the tickets at so, Joe's. So maybe not even maybe for basketball then. I, I think they will for basketball, but that's a good question. We'll have to scope it out during basketball yeah, season. Yeah, I mean the last time you scoped it out didn't go so well as you that's talked true. about. So tell tell me about that game. So I did see a really cool thing. The most amazing thing I saw from that game was the flea flicker. And had you ever seen a flea flicker play before this? I had not. So paint me the picture of where we are in the game when that when this play happens. Okay, so it's the beginning of the fourth quarter. Nebraska is actually up 17 to 7. And they're playing at home, right? So all the fans yes. are cheering and they think yep. that they have it locked in the bag. Colorado uncorks this gem of a play. It was the longest pass in college football in three years. He was almost behind the end zone, and I think Steven Montez just launches it 40 yards. That was so cool to see. And the receiver jukes the corner and takes it all the way into the end zone. 17-13, a game that Colorado is eventually going to win. And of course, Michigan fans are still upset about 1997 when Scott Frost lobbies for a split title. Scott Frost's mom, who's a decorated athlete herself, out here trash-talking Michigan, the split title. We'll reserve our judgment on Nebraska here officially as part of the podcast, but early signs are not too promising. We don't like them because of Kirkwoods, right? We don't. Our third storyline was your house party. How was that? So I told this joke when I invited my friend JC to come over to watch the Michigan State-West Michigan game. And I said to him, hey, I really need to spend some time watching some lesser in-state teams. And as you know... JC hit me back with a vicious comeback where he says, aren't you used to doing that? Implying that Michigan is the lesser in-state team, which I'm pretty offended by since we beat Michigan State all the time. That's so funny of JC. How did Michigan State look? Last week you had said that Indiana might have a shot at beating them because their run game looked terrible. Did that change at all for game two? So it's hard to tell. They really looked good for week two. It's almost like two different offenses out there. In order for hashtag nine Winiana to occur, you have to beat one of Ohio State or Michigan yes. State. Is that right? Mm -hmm. So let's have you, why don't you just beat Ohio State this coming week and you'll have one in the bag and maybe you can beat Michigan State since you need hashtag 12 Indiana. That's true. You have to win all the games for 12 wins. You have to win all of them. Yes. Each week we will talk about what we see as a major key to enjoying and appreciating the sport of college football. The name of the segment comes from one of our heroes here on the podcast, DJ Holland. It's our idiosyncratic take on what we see as the major key. Last week for our major key, we spoke about Vegas sports betting lines, the spread points the game. And this week, we're going to explore the rules behind the terminology we sometimes hear. True freshman, redshirt freshman, all the way up to fifth year senior. Brandon Telton, Nevada kicker our favorite true freshman here on the podcast and the star of last week's show for beating Purdue. A true freshman is easy to understand. Someone who was in high school last year and sees the field and gets to play in their first year in college. But Jeff, what about a redshirt freshman? What's that? So sometimes there are several reasons why a coach might decide to give a freshman a redshirt. The terminology comes from the shirt that you wear in practice, a redshirt. 
Sometimes there might be a backlog, lots of juniors and seniors playing a certain position on a team and the freshmen coming into this position. Sometimes it might be a position on a team that requires a lot of learning the playbook or beefing up in the college weight room. A coach may decide that someone fresh from high school may not be big enough or familiar enough with the playbook to immediately play. Students typically have four years of eligibility to play ball, which might align with what we think is the four years of college, right? Freshman, mm -hmm. sophomore, junior, senior. What redshirting means is a student might get an extra year. For this redshirt year, they can attend classes, practice, wear a uniform, but not use a, one of the four years of their athletic eligibility. So they can be in college for five years. And the NCAA changed the rule for what that fifth year might look like, right? The new rule is the a redshirt for that redshirt year may play up to four games in that extra quote-unquote fifth year without burning a year of their four years of eligibility. So are you saying a player might wear a redshirt for their first year, play in up to four games, and then still have four more years of eligibility to play? That's exactly right. Having changed that rule, coaches love it because they can give some of their freshmen in a low leverage situation where they might be up a lot or it might be against easier team and the freshmen can get some real life game reps. The flip side of that is because it's about maximizing that five years of their program, you might not want to redshirt a player that would go to the NFL after three years in college, say. That makes sense because that's the minimum before a player can declare for the NFL. They have to be out of high school for at least three years. So it's a bit more common in the NBA and with basketball for there to be quote unquote one and dones. Mm -hmm. Commissioner Adam Silver, we're a big fan of the commish mm -hmm. here yeah. on this podcast, but he's thinking about modifying that one and done rule. But in the NFL, in college football, the rule is three years out of high school. And so you might not want to redshirt someone with that talent who might go after three years, but some of the beefier positions, the ones that you have to bulk up more for in the college weight room, the ones that might be harder to learn out of high school. A coach might decide to redshirt a player for the first year and then get four more years out of them after that. And us at Michigan being academic overachievers, a lot of these students end up getting their college degree and a graduate degree from Michigan in that five-year span. On the field, they might have one year redshirt, four years playing for role on the team. But on the academic side, they might have three or four years getting that undergraduate degree. A lot of three-year graduates because they work in the summer as well and take credits then. And then doing that graduate school while they're playing. Each week, in the spirit of my favorite Big Ten Network TV show, Campus Eats, on our segment, One City Thing, we highlight a special place in Bloomington and Ann Arbor that people should visit on a day trip back to the city for a game. Kathy, why don't you start us off? What is your special place for this week? My special place this week is called the Indiana Memorial Union. It's the second largest student union in the country. Inside, you can find a bowling alley, a billiards hall, a movie theater, hair salon, cafes, restaurants, one of the largest Starbucks in the country. Oh, and a hotel. You mean you can actually stay at the Union as yes. an alum? Yes, you can. Why aren't we staying there this weekend? Because you love Hotwire. I do love Hotwire. We went there in 2017 to visit the Union, and you showed me sort of your haunts when we watched the Michigan-Indiana overtime game. A game that's just, it's just always stupid when Michigan plays Indiana, but luckily we had Mike DeBoard calling the fourth quarter and overtime plays. Beautiful plays. Run, run, run some more. Fake pass, run. Uh -huh. Yeah. 
And I remember shooting some arcade hoops with you and just chatting to you about the game. That's right. I beat you, right? Yeah, I think I think I think that might be right. I, I always want you to win any game that we play each other against. And that place, the reason why you took me there, I think I asked you, why don't you take me on a tour of campus? But mm-hmm. I want your tour, a tour of the places that you like and love. And this one, pretty personal and special for you, right? It is. It was a beautiful fall day when we walked around the Union. The Union Hotel is where I stayed before I even took my first steps on campus as a student. I was interviewing for a scholarship with the Kelly School of Business, and for an entire weekend, we spent the weekend at the Union and stayed at the hotel. You end up getting that scholarship? Oh, no. <laughs> but didn't you get like... You get I got like a, like a reconciliation scholarship. But not the one that you interviewed yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. Okay, you just keep going. Because <laughs> you're like, I get it. Like, what? You're trying, I thought, like, you would say that you got this. You were talking about interview. Yeah, it's like, I know. <laughs> All right, keep going. Um, it was one of my first. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, give me a second. <laughs> I got one of those like sympathy, like here's this, but I mean, I did pay for everything, yeah. but I didn't get the one I interviewed. Okay, okay. Okay, I think It was one of my first fond memories of being on campus. As a student, I had a friend who worked at the large Starbucks who I would visit almost daily, and I often took naps in the union if I had enough time. It's the perfect pit stop in between classes. You are one of the best nappers that I've ever met. So that's definitely believable. That's what a lot of people say. I love to just fall asleep wherever I am whenever, if there's time and, and space. Jeff, what's your one city thing for the week? Since you talked about the student union at Indiana, I think it's only poetic that I talk about the one at Michigan too. Having attended the law school at the University of Michigan, the Michigan Student Union is actually one of the closest places to get a meal or frozen yogurt. I totally had a frozen yogurt addiction in law school. Close to the law school, that's not the law school cafeteria. That's right. And you also told me a funny story about that time. One of the first times I met Daryl Saylor, one of my best friends from law school, being from Florida, big Gator and Michigan fan who's going to be on the podcast, he told me that there was very good Chinese food really close to the law school. You've walked me around Ann Arbor from around the law school. There are three main streets where people go for a meal, right? Starting from the law school, the geographic alignment, there's South U, South University Street, which is more undergraduate bar focused. And there's State Street going up towards the Liberty area where us grad students ate out a bit more. And then there's Main Street with the fancy restaurants that you take your parents to when they come visit. And from what I remember, none of the Chinese food eateries on these three streets are super close to the law school, right? Yeah. So when Daryl told me that there was a great Chinese place, a stone's throw from the law school. You didn't think it would be the Panda Express in the basement of the student union. Right. I was so excited for good Chinese. I think that day we had just done so much work on the law journal. And I was excited for Chinese by the law school. And really surprised when Daryl took me there. But I guess I don't mind Panda Express. I just think of American Chinese food as a separate category altogether. It's just salt and heat and sugar, fat, which is the title of a really great cookbook that I like too. (laughs) That's so funny. So aside from that quick meal in the Union basement, are there other things that make it special? There's the cube. It's this large cube-shaped sculpture right next to Michigan Union. And it's a really heavy sculpture. It's balanced on one of its corners. But for how heavy it is, it's just really surprisingly easy to go spin around. Like, I feel like a small child could spin it around. That's cool. 
And when Michigan is on college game day, which will hopefully happen this year, ESPN always pans to a shot of students rotating the queue. The sculpture, which I learned today looking it up for the podcast, was created by Tony Rosenthal in 1968. The other cool thing that happened at the Union in the 60s was the speech that JFK, then Senator, gave on the steps of the Union. He started his speech by saying, thanks to you, as a graduate of the Michigan of the East, Harvard University, there's these corny shirts that say, Harvard, Michigan of the East. That's (laughs) where it's from. And apparently he got some applause for that throwaway line. Legend has it, this speech that Senator John F. Kennedy gave three and a half weeks away from the election that would make him president. This speech was a call to action that he gave that led to the formation of the Peace Corps. This week for Rival Watch, we will see what our absolute favorites, the Purdue Boilermakers and the Ohio State Buckeyes were up to this week. To start off the segment, I have an admission to make. I'm a big fan of the writing on Hammer and Rails. Wait, what? Why? Wait, first of all, why are they called that? Hammer and Rails? Boilermakers? Hammer and rails, they make the trains, the train cars, the engines. Oh, whatever, Jeff. I try not to think about Purdue that much or people that make the boilers. Well, I follow Purdue Twitter. Wait, Jeff. Jeff, what is this? Why do you follow Purdue Twitter? Do you know which podcast you're on? We're called Hoo Hoo Hail, not Choo Choo Hail. That's amazing. I'm all about the gratuitous choo-choo references whenever we talk about Purdue. I think anyone who graduated from Purdue should have choo-choo following them. More seriously, I think I started following Purdue Twitter when they beat Ohio State so fantastically last year. I think even though it's your rival, you guys might want to watch that game, bottle up some of that juju for next week. I don't know, Jeff. The two things I just found out about you, I'm not sure if I can get on board with this. We'll talk about this offline after we're done. One of the big statistics that got thrown around this week on Purdue Twitter. I still can't believe that you follow them. I'm just, I'm bitter. Folks can't tell. On Purdue Twitter, they were saying that their quarterback, Elijah Sindelar, is the number one quarterback in the country. I think it was total yards and passes completed. Purdue Twitter was saying that Elijah is the most prolific passer in the country, the best quarterback, according to various metrics. You can have all the fanciest stats and metrics in the world. It didn't help them against Nevada. That freshman kicker was awesome. We love him. Based on what you saw this past week from Purdue, and obviously from your own team, but Rival Watch from Purdue, how's the odds for Indiana winning the bucket looking? Here's the deal with Purdue. They had a 42-24 win over Vanderbilt. Purdue has a great passing game. As we mentioned, Elijah Sindelar had 519 yards of total offense. It was the fifth best day in school history. We got to give this guy some credit too. He has some thick skin. Jeff Brom gave him some constructive criticism early in the game, and he responded. As Purdue Twitter was saying, best quarterback in the country. I don't know about that. We'll see if he even has a shot at getting to New York. What about the other parts of the game other than the passing game? The running game actually did not look that great. Ironically, they didn't run that much when they had that epic win over OSU last year, but Brom said that they need to incorporate more running. They also had some special teams issues, including some poor punting, and their defense allowed several long pass plays. Overall, though, I hate to say this, there was improvement from last week. And the bucket, who gets it? I think based on what we've seen from both teams in the past couple weeks, Indiana takes the bucket. What about the Buckeyes, Jeff? Any helpful notes from you that we can take into our game against them this week? Speaking of following rival blogs and rival Twitter, 
I don't think I could ever follow Buckeye Twitter, but I do read some of their publications. So 11 Warriors, The Ozone. The Ozone has a great column called Michigan Monday, where they have one columnist that dedicates himself to writing and watching the Michigan games each week as a scouting preview for the game against us. And I helpfully tried to scout the opposition to see what interesting things they could tell you about the game. Next week, I will come back and say that I'm following Ohio State on Twitter. I mean, that would just be my comeuppance after following Purdue Twitter. Hammer and Rails, good writing. You should read it. Before we start on the X's and O's, the game they had against Cincinnati and what Ohio State is worried about, I read two things from the Ohio State blog that I didn't know about the Indiana program prior to today. One quite good thing. And one terrible thing, which explains why, as I always say, you're the only Indiana fan (laughs) in the entire city of Chicago, maybe in the entire state of Illinois, I'm upgrading it. So would you like the good, interesting fact from the Ohio State blogs or the super sad one first? Let's start with super sad. Just get it over with. Okay. So here's the super sad one. It's actually super sad too, because it's two sad things. So what Ohio State blogs said... I think this is factually accurate. I respect the publication that I read it on. The first fact is Indiana has not, I repeat, has not won eight games in the season since 1993, meaning the last time that they've won eight games or more was in 1993. Ouch. How many years ago was that? It's like 26 years? Yes, it is the age of my younger brother. Yikes. Who's going to be a guest host on the show, right? Yes, we will definitely feature him on an episode in the future. And the second part of that super sad statistic is the Hoosiers, since 1993, has only had one winning season, meaning one bowl game since 1993. This was the illustrious 2007 campaign where they went seven and six. That's right. I remember at one point where one of my good friends from high school attended an Indiana bowl game, and I forgot what he was talking about, but it must have been that year. Those are the two Indiana facts. As for the Buckeyes, I think they were really good against Cincinnati. It's kind of hard. Even though Luke Fickle had some history with the Ohio State program, as I've been telling you, Kathy, he's probably our favorite Ohio State coach of recent memory because he coached what my Buckeye fan friends call the quote-unquote Luke Fickle season between when Jim Trestle got fired for letting his team trade gear from the locker room for tattoos. Jim Trestle, the senator, got fired. And before Urban Meyer was hired, they had a Luke Fickle year. And this is my 3-0 year. And it happens to be the last victory between Michigan and Ohio State that I witnessed live in person in 2011. There wasn't that much that was notable about that big defeat, except Coach Fickle saying that he really wished that the Cincinnati Bearcats had given Ohio State a game. I think reading the points to note or items of concern, and it's always interesting to read the other team's description of your team. Like, I always like to read the other team's blog preview about a game because you really learn about what the other team's thinking. So one of the things that they're really worried about is Penix as a dual-threat quarterback, meaning both his ability to pass and run. That's right, Jeff. I'd be so excited if Penix broke out a really long run against Ohio State. We've already seen him throw a really long pass. I want to see him break out the long run. Yeah, hopefully that worry that they have about him being a dual-threat quarterback will play out. This is really good context for next week's game. If Indiana hasn't won eight games in the season since 1993, this whole hashtag non business might be some pie-in-the-sky optimism. I'll take that bet. I'm really excited about from what I've seen in the first two games, and I think we have a really good shot at nine Indiana, if not 12 Indiana. One thing you failed to do, what's the good piece of news? 
So Phil Steele, he does a lot of interesting statistics where he looks at how many games players have played. He tries to aggregate that to see how experienced teams are. In 2018, Michigan had by far the youngest team in the country, which is why we had that 8-5 and five record, because we just had a young team. But this year, according to Phil Steele, Indiana football is the second most experienced team in the Big Ten, just how much games and minutes they have under their belt, and the 26th most experienced team in the nation entering this season. So I think that bodes well if you think experience running plays, learning the playbook, playing the game correlates with victories, and this might be the year. I think it's time to let all that experience shine. Thanks for that tidbit, Jeff. You know, I've been saying all this time that Indiana's been overrated. And the fact that you gave us the bad facts and neglected to tell us the good one, I think you overrate us as well. You mean underrate. Underrate. I think it'd be really hard to overrate a team that hasn't won eight games in a season. But, you know, like they might be overrated after winning against an FCS team last week, right? 52-0. We'll see. We'll see how that plays out. We'll see. To close out this week's episode, we're really excited to announce that Who Who Hail is going on the road. Our next episode will be on location. Kathy, will you tell our audience what we have planned? Yes, Jeff. We are going to the one and only Memorial Stadium. We are going to Indiana University visiting Bloomington. I can't wait to go there. We haven't been there for a football game since 2017 when we talked about that Michigan-Indiana overtime game. I never thought that I would be going, I think we always have a plan to try to see the Michigan-Indiana game. It is hoo-hoo hail after all. And so we rotate yours when you're in Bloomington, when you're in Ann Arbor. But because half of hoo-hoo hail is moving to Boston, we're trying to maximize all the different Big Ten weekends. So I never thought that I'd go to Indiana to see a game that wasn't a Wolverines. Who are we seeing this weekend? We are going to see Indiana play Jeff's favorite team, the Ohio State Buckeyes. Last week, your team set a new stadium record, your largest margin of victory ever, which, as I was joking, doesn't really say much about your stadium's history, (laughs) does it? No witty comeback to that? I think our stadium looks pretty cool, and I think you will see the stadium through a different lens when you go see it next week, Jeff. So this new record for largest margin of victory, I think you guys will do it again this week, beat the Buckeyes by one more point than last week, so 53 points. Shut out the Buckeyes. Here's the thing with Ohio State. They hold a 74 to 12 to 5 advantage in the all-time series. So they've actually beat us for 23 consecutive games, dating to a 27 all-time 1990. That sounds familiar. It seems like you also have a 50-game losing streak to the Michigan Wolverines, don't you? I know. The last time we beat Ohio State was in 1987 and 1988. So that I, 1987 team must have been really good because you beat Michigan in 1987 That's too, right? what I was saying too. I think it was just a good year overall for the Hoosiers because that was the last time we won a national basketball title as well. But we'll get into that later during the season. With Ohio State, they prevailed last season against us. It was 49-26. to 26, But they didn't pull away from us until a fourth quarter touchdown pass from Dwayne Haskins to Indianapolis native Terry McLaurin, which increased their lead 42-26. to 26. I wouldn't feel so bad about that. I mean, Dwayne Haskins, it's rare that Big Ten quarterbacks are like all-world first-round draft pick, right? And as a Big Ten quarterback, he was drafted first round. So he was just amazing. Peyton Ramsey, me thinking back to that game that we watched, Mm -hmm. Peyton Ramsey had three touchdowns. He had a couple hundred yards. He did really good too. He did. Having talked about the spread last week, we try to, I think it kind of adds to the enjoyment of our game, just as a baseline for how to think about like how the Vegas people think about the game. 
we do two things here on Who Hail. Before we look up the official Vegas line, we ourselves try to benchmark how we're thinking we about the teams, and we set a line. I think I said OSU by 24, although now that I've looked up the line, maybe I've been giving Justin Fields too much credit and Coach Ellen too little credit. I agree with you. When you said 24, I was like, that's a lot. I said 17 before I looked it up. The Vegas line for OSU is a 15-point favorite. The Buckeyes are currently 1-1 one one against the spread. What happened was they failed to cover the 28-point line in their opener against FAU. And that one, they were up by 28, right? That's 28 true. 28-0, yep. and then they started turtling. Yes. So I think sometimes it's hard. I think like that one, you can't understand. Yeah, and the other game, they covered the 15 points they were given when they welcomed the Bearcats to town. That one, they gave a lot of credit to Coach Luke Fickle. I think part of that line, 15 points, is Vegas thought Luke Fickle, as a former Ohio State coach, knew things about Ohio State and would Mm -hmm. play them tough. And I think Coach Fickle wanted to play them tough, too. He was very regretful when he said he really wished they had given the Buckeyes, the Cincinnati Bearcats had given the Buckeyes a real game. I think as we looked it up, the line was shifting a little bit towards the Buckeyes sneaking up to 15, as you said. Right. It started out at 14, and then it snuck up to 15. I think OSU will fail to cover because Indiana will win. Speaking of which, after two games on the march to hashtag 9Windiana, do you like your offense better or your defense better? I think that's a question that Michigan, we like our defense a lot because of Don Brown but we're always hoping for a better offense. And that's why you hired Josh Gaddis. Mm-hmm. I think this year, I've been thinking Coach Allen with a defensive personality, but now that you don't have DeBoard holding the offense back, as much as we love our podcast, Guardian Angel, it was true that he was kind of holding it back a little bit. I wanted to just, it's been hard for me to decide which I like better two games in. Which do you like better? That's a good question, Jeff. And you're right. Coach Allen handed over the keys to a new offensive coordinator, Kalen DeBoer, and a new defensive coordinator, Kane Womack. I've really liked what I've seen from both offensive and defensive coordinators. This one's really tough. If I had to pick one at the moment, I would pick the offensive side with Kalen DeBoer. And you actually mentioned the reason why earlier, Jeff. It's because it's such a stark difference from what we saw with Mike DeBoer, our prince, I'm just really excited to see a lot of throwing this year and not plays that I can predict. That's cool. I mean, for me, the jury is still out. We'll see how both sides of the ball will be watching, how they play Ohio State and how they play Justin Fields. And I think we'll have a much better answer next week about how mm-hmm. the offense or defense held up. So a little bit on week three and our visit to Bloomington to see the game. Due to how the AP poll shook out this past week, Next weekend, week three's college football schedule is the first weekend without a top 25 versus top 25, a ranked versus ranked game. There will be no such game. And this is the first weekend since October 14th, 2017. So we think it's even more of a snooze fest than week two. For me, the Michigan bye week, it'll be what the Michigan blogs call mm-hmm. wife and girlfriend day, or otherwise known as clean out your house's gutters day. And we'll be in Bloomington at the game. And then maybe recording some on location after the game and deciding which game to watch. Maybe we'll be rooting for upsets. We'll look at the schedule and see what else looks interesting outside of the game that we'll be at in Bloomington. And that's a wrap for episode three of Who Who Hail, covering week two of college football. Stay tuned next week as we report back from on location, covering Indiana's great victory over the Ohio State Buckeyes. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Hoo-hoo. Hell.